Bordy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Graham Simsian became a publishing phenomenon with his debut novel, The Rosie Project, and follow-up, The Rosie Effect, selling over 5 million copies worldwide. And the final book in the trilogy, The Rosie Result, is out now. There's a proposed Hollywood adaption of the story in the works, and Bill Gates is even a fan. Travel is an integral part of all his stories, whether rural France, Melbourne, or even a grey day in Manchester. Graham Simsian has delightful stories for you here on The Big Travel Podcast. You've been on tour for three months. You're touring the... Where are you touring? Okay, so, well, I've started off with Australia and New Zealand and, you know, all states of Australia and then off to New Zealand. And I've been um, around the US, Canada, and now I'm here just in the UK for a week um, doing a few little spot visits. But I know from chatting to you before we started recording that you're very familiar with a lot of these places you're travelling with. Why don't we start actually by you telling us about your books? I know The Rosie Project was your one of your first books. It, well, actually, you've written books before there, but it was a, your, one of your first bestsellers. Am I right? Okay. My, my very first book was called Data Modelling Essentials, and it's likely to be of interest only to a very small proportion of your listeners. So I was going to say, st- I don't think I know what data <laughs> modelling is. I don't think I actually know, want to know what it is. No, I think it's a very good response. So my first novel was, in fact, the Rosie Project. So I wrote The Rosie Project, which is the story of Don Tillman, a socially challenged geneticist, and his search for the perfect woman. Followed that with The Rosie Effect, which is the story after he's found the perfect woman, although not quite what he was expecting, and his challenges to keep a, a long-term relationship going, something that's <laughs> very, very close to my heart. We have a lot of, Everyone we have, else is, I'm sure. Well, we have so many books about falling in love, not so many about staying in love, about the the value of long-term love as distinct from romantic love. And then my third book sort of compared the two of those, long-term love and romantic love. It's the best of Adam Sharp, and it's a story of a man whose great love of his life from his younger days comes back and gets in touch again and threatens the relationship, the long-term but somewhat dull relationship that he's been sitting in. And followed that with Two Steps Forward, very travel-related. This is set on the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. Oh, um, lovely. Written in partnership with my wife, alternating chapters, so that's two steps forward. And the most recent book is Back to Cat the Rosie series. It's the Rosie result. Don and Rosie's 11-year-old son is struggling at school with the same problems that Don had as a child, and the school has said that maybe an autism diagnosis is appropriate here, and Don is suitably horrified because he's never thought he might be autistic. 
These are very real subjects that I'm sure we can all relate to, and this is probably why you've sold over six million copies worldwide. About five, I think, about five. Not, not including the data books. Um, but but look, they're, they're close to people's hearts, and these are comedic books. So these are, di- are definitely, well, particularly the Rosie books, are definitely written as comedies. Um, and there's a bit of a trace, a trace of comedy in the other in the other couple of books, and I think that's part of the appeal. But you can, you know, I'm a great believer that you can use comedy to tackle some of the most important topics. Now, the Santiago de Compostela route is something I've always wanted to do. I grew up in Spain. I spend a lot of time in Spain. I've never done the route. Tell me about the route. I'm presuming that you walked it to research your book. Okay. Well, when you say the route, when people talk about the the Camino, they are generally talking about walking from St. Jean-Pierre de Port or Roncesvalles on the French-Spanish border through to Santiago de Compostela, which is the, the destination where the the bones of St. James the Elder are supposedly buried and you know, held in the uh, in the tomb at the cathedral. Obviously, back in the 9th century when this started, or 9th or 10th century, not everybody started at St. John Pierre de Port. They had to get there. So from all over Europe, there are feeder routes to there, as well as alternative routes, because obviously you're starting from Lisbon, you don't go to St. John Pierre de Port, to, you, you take an entirely different route. So all of them have in common, they end at Santiago de Compostela, but... They are all over Europe. And the, the romance of this is you can find a scallop shell symbol, which is a symbol of the root, finger post, as it were, anywhere in Europe, and you can start following those signs and you will be on a tributary of a track which becomes another tributary which joins the main route and, and eventually find yourself in Santiago. My wife Anne and I were staying in a small village in France. We saw the scallop shell and we decided that we would do this this walk from there. So we actually ended up walking around the traditional route from St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port to, to Santiago is about 500 miles, 800 kilometers or so. We walked from central France, and that ended up being just over 2,000 kilometers, 1,200 miles. How long did that take for you? 87 days. We had two days off in that time. My wife's birthday, a little celebration when we got to St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port at the official starting point, where we'd actually planned to stop. But we made a decision that we would press on and go all the way. That sounds like an incredible journey. It was. What was your standout moment from it? Oh, I have to say, arriving in Santiago. So many people say this when I ask them about the Well, you know, at the beginning of the journey, we met with a guy who gave us our credentials, our sort of walking passports that you get stamped at each, um, each night. And he gave us a little advice. He'd walked it five times, I think. And, And he said, he had three predictions. He said, one, you'll get blisters. Two, the walk will change you. And three which is probably two, when you get to Santiago Cathedral, you will cry. Now, I didn't cry. I'm not a very emotional guy, but my wife was certainly choked up and so forth. And we were there. This is an amazing feeling of having done it. I'd be crying. I'd be definitely be crying, yeah, yeah. Just because, not just because of the blisters. <laughs> Obviously, lots of people do tell me when they do these long journeys that actually arriving is, is very good, but sometimes an anticlimax. But did you meet any interesting people along your way? Well, lots. Although the first time we walked it, we didn't take the main route. You say the first time, there's obviously another story. Yes, yeah. 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 We walked as far as St. John Pierre de Port and we decided to take the alternative coastal route, uh, the Camino del Norte and then the Camino Primitivo, which is one of the oldest routes that, that cuts inland and so forth, but much less frequented. So we didn't meet as many people as you would walk on the quite crowded Camino Frances, which is the most, most well-known route. But probably the most important meeting that we had was in the first two weeks of walking. We were walking essentially from Cluny in France on a feeder route for a feeder route going to Le Puy en Velay where one of the well-known French routes starts and it was two weeks walking and we weren't even sure we'd go beyond that two weeks it was as long as we'd ever walked in our lives 
and we only met one other walker by day or by night um, at hostels or anything. We were walking in winter, so it was not the, the peak season. He was a young Belgian guy, 19 years old, carrying a huge pack, and we, we fell in with him and so forth. And after he'd found out that we were both aspiring writers at that stage, he said, I've got the solution for you. He says, you should write a book set on the Camino, a novel. He said, you should write it together. And he said, and it should be a love story about old people. <laughs> so he very much summed us up, I think. And we, we thought it was such a silly idea, really, because you don't normally write novels together or anything like that. But, you know, once we each done our own thing and I'd done the Rosie Project and my wife had been published and she's published now as a, a crime writer. Um, Anne Buist is her name and her books are available in England in the UK, sorry. We took that up and we took up a suggestion and we then walked to the Camino again for, I would say, research purposes if the tax man is listening, but also for the pleasure of doing it again. And this time we walked the, um, we took the same route through France, essentially, um, but this time we walked the main popular Camino Francaise. So I'm quite intrigued by this mysterious Belgian dude that you met. He's not like the the old Oracle guy. He's a 19-year-old with a backpack, and he said, you shall walk yep, the Camino it. de Santiago. You shall write about it with your wife. Yep. It should be a love story. And you know, I had his I had his contact details down somewhere and lost them, but we have memorialized him in the book. He's inspired a character, the German Bernard, who is, um, and it really came from one night where this guy was traveling with virtually no money. And we said, what do you do for accommodation? He says, look, every time you know, I get to a village, I just find a woman to sleep with. <laughs> and, and Anne explained him after he used that expression a couple of times that this probably wasn't the best English phrasing to use. But, but it inspired. Is that what he meant, though? Did he it, mean that no, he actually no, no, found what he, a woman no, to sleep with? He, he would go to the municipal offices and they would um, find typically a Catholic. Um, lady who would right. who would offer her house to pilgrims and he would sleep in his own bed and receive and receive Catholic, Catholic, Catholic hospitality or charity as it were for as a pilgrim walking the Camino. So we um we created this character Bernard who's also walking without paying as it were. Um but he's um Perhaps he takes a more literal interpretation of that, of what our man said. Well, should we try and find him, this Belgian guy? We, Belgian guy, we have lots of listeners in Belgium. I used to live in Belgium. Should we try and find him? Okay, so this was, th this was 2011, starting February 2011, and his name was Matthias. Matthias. So Matthias is out there somewhere. He was carrying a huge pack. We don't even know if he finished because he was having a lot of knee problems with his, with his huge pack. And he had started in Switzerland and just drawn a straight line originally to Santiago de Compostela and decided he'd walk the straight line um, and found there were mountains <laughs> and no paths. Was that so, a surprise to him, yeah. the mountains that you know, so, separate France and Spain? Yeah. So, so he, ended up, he ended up on, you know, on well-marked well tracks and so forth, and that's where we met him. But Matthias from Belgium... If you're, if you're Matthias, he was 19 in 2011. Help me with the maths. Uh, okay, so he must be 27 now. 27. He had bad knees at the time. He was carrying a massive backpack, and he said, you should go. And he started, and the important thing is he started in Switzerland. Started in Switzerland. That would be a really differentiating point. Okay, and he didn't know there were mountains in between. Well, he, he certainly <laughs> didn't take them into account. I, I, don't, I want, don't want to flag him as ignorant. <laughs> That's but he, he, did, he did think he did express a desire to do this sort of walk in Australia, which is 
just not feasible in the same way because you can't walk village to village in Australia. You run out of villages very quickly. It's so vast, isn't it? Yeah. Well, should we move on to Australia? Because you're from Australia, as that accent would indicate. Well, I was actually born in New Zealand, but, oh, okay. I, but, I, but I moved to Australia when I was 12, so I spent most of my life living in Australia. And uh, many of your books are based in Australia, in Melbourne, is that yeah, right? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a writer who is not particularly good at, at making stuff up as far as locations, appearances and so forth, so I draw from life. So I set my books in cities, even in houses that I that I have known. In fact, um, when I wrote the best of Adam Sharp, um, I needed a house in Norwich, and that's I, Norwich, I, England. I should Nor- say there isn't some Norwich in the outback. Near oh, there probably, the probably is. There probably, probably yeah. Norwich is everywhere. This is Norwich, Norfolk, England, where I lived in in a flat in um, 1984, 1985. But I didn't want our character to live in a flat. I wanted them to live in a, a regular house. And actually, Emma Healy, the author of Elizabeth is Missing, very kindly let me poke through her house in Norwich so that I could get a sense of the geography. Because I just want, I don't want you to have something in the book where he says he walked from the living room to the kitchen and then later on he walked down the hallway from the living room to the kitchen. And, so. and also in Australia, you're so much more used to massive houses compared to the ones we have here. You probably don't understand the the, the compactness of a house in Norwich compared to one in sprawling well, in a well, suburb in Melbourne. Certainly the layout and just things like you have box rooms and so forth. Yes, which in we Australian, have box rooms. Yeah, in Australia wouldn't have a box room. I was. know a lot of my American friends. I don't know about Australian houses for this, but they get annoyed with us that we have the washing machine downstairs in the kitchen because it doesn't make any sense. They have it upstairs in a utility room, so you can just put your clothes away mm. and you know you know transfer them easily from one place to another. So when I'm rich, I'm going to have a washing machine upstairs or the utility room. Does that yeah, make sense? It does indeed. But you know, you're right about um, Australians largely enjoying, particularly English people who move to Australia, say, wow, I can have you know a quarter acre block or whatever. Whereas, you know, I actually live um, in the inner city, really. So I've just got an apartment. So Melbourne's I'm- amazing. Describe Melbourne to people who haven't been there. I absolutely love it. Well, it has a reputation as uh, one of the world's most livable cities and usually ranks very high on those. It's a very multicultural city. So I don't think of Melbourne so much um, in terms of the planning side of it, although my father was chief planner for Melbourne for, oh, really? for, for, for many years. Oh, that's yeah. a to and, and So it's, it's, it's quite good with parks, and that was one of his, his legacies. Massive park. What's that park in the middle with the big needle point in it? Botanic Gardens, yes. you think of? Yeah, oh, you, uh, I know what you're thinking of, where the uh, My Music Bowl is and yes, so forth, which right. actually features in the best of Adam Sharp. Oh, um, okay. they, they go to a, a Christmas carols by candlelight at the Maya Music Bowl, which is an absolute feature of the Melbourne the Melbourne scene. But I don't think of Melbourne as much in terms of geography. I mean, it's got sprawling suburbs and so forth, as much in terms of the people, the culture. Um, it's a good a good food city. It's a good cultural city. You know, we have the uh, the competition with Sydney, but it's it's generally Sydney's got the harbour and we've got the culture. So what, I know you've travelled quite extensively. What should I ask you about your travels? Well, probably how they've played into the books, because I've travelled a lot, um, and I've travelled on book tours and so forth. I've travelled for just plain tourism, and before that I travelled as an information technology teacher and, and you know, consultant. So This is back to the data. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but look, I've, I've, I've really had some, some great travels around the book. So I've been to Poland, I've been to Hungary, I've been to Bhutan, now there's, you know, for a Bhutan Writers' Festival. So uh, it's been wonderful where the books have taken me. Has the travel aspect of writing and getting the bu- books published, has that been one of the best parts of it? 
My wife certainly thinks so. And, and in fact, when we got the advance for the, for the Rosie project, I was already moderately financially secure. I'd sort of semi-retired to write. And you know, we got quite a little bit of money coming in from the Rosie project. I said, what do you want to do with this? And you said, I want to turn left when I go into a plane. So yes. we get to fly business class, which is great for older people like us. Um, it means you can sleep on those long flights from Australia. But, you know, there's, there's no country I'd sort of separate out and say, look, that was the absolute best travel experience. I, and once again, I enjoy the people more than the geography. Tell me about Bhutan. I've never been. Well, first of all, Bhutan has a real reputation as a hard place to get to. You really have to, you know, I mean, practically speaking, you tend to go via India. But just tourism there has traditionally been difficult in terms of visas, minimum spending requirements and all that. And it's a, it's a mountainous country. And I think the most dramatic thing about Bhutan was we was flying in and apparently only a few pilots are sort of licensed to fly into this airport, which is it's, it's a mountain. It's a country of mountains, not of, not of plains. And it's just all mountains. So just flying in was great. And we saw Everest. We actually saw Mount Everest from the air, which we hadn't been able to see when we visited India and uh, because it was just too foggy, too too smoggy. But there we finally got to see Everest from the air and we walked up to one of the famous monasteries. And, you know, so it was, it's about the mountains. And are you well received? So when you go to somewhere as foreign, you know, to us as Bhutan and you sit there and you're reading extracts from your book, who's, who's attending? Well, look, the Bhutan Writers Festival, I think, is very interesting because it's very heavily sponsored by India, who are very keen to maintain good relations with Bhutan, perhaps in competition with Bhutan's other important neighbour, China, on the other side. So it's a very strategically placed country. Look, I think, to be honest, I think some of the seats were filled with students. It's all pretty new, getting you know, getting fiction produced and read in a very small country. The highlight for me, and I'm going to have trouble remembering her name because Bhutanese names, probably Bhutan's most famous writer whose book I had read, whose most best known book I had read prior to coming to Bhutan as background novel. Uh, and I got to sit together at dinner and it was just an honor to meet her and, and, and chat. And she said very good English about, um, about writing in Bhutan, about being an author in Bhutan. I think like, like anything, if you work in a profession or a craft or whatever, it's always interesting to meet people in other parts of the world who are doing the same sort of work as you and discuss how life is and always visiting a country is far more interesting if you have something to do there other than to sort of walk around gaping. So where else has been very interesting along your travels? Where has really captured your heart? We actually have a house in France, which is a very traditional place to travel and spend time. But it ended up absolutely coincidental. We decided we'd take six months off. We're going to spend it in Italy and get to know Italy better. And we had so much trouble finding a place to stay in Italy for that extended period of time that wasn't going to charge us by the week. This is before the days of Airbnb and so on. And ended up finding a place in, in France. Fell in love with the area in southern Burgundy and kept coming back and eventually eventually bought a small place which we uh, which we spend time in. So in terms of capturing the heart, and I speak a little French, which, which obviously if you speak the local language even as badly as I speak French, it obviously helps with with how you fit in and so on. So describe to me where you live. Have you bought a house? What is it in a village? It's in a village. I won't I won't name the village, but it's not far from Clooney. Ah, oh, this that, is where your walk that, started. That's where we started our walk. We did what the ancient pilgrims did. We just walked out the door and started walking towards Santiago de Compostela and following the uh, the signs. And we only had to go, you know, a hundred yards before there was the first, there was the first sign. I've never seen these signs. I don't know why I'm not looking at them. You have to look. Look, you have to be looking. Once you get an eye for them, of course, when you're, when you're walking. And it's a shell. It's a, it's a, it's a stylized scallop shell. Just look up Camino de Santiago and you'll see those stylized scallop shells everywhere in sort of blue and yellow. And they're on lampposts and so forth. You, you, 
you find them exiting a village, typically the easiest to find. I mean, if you know where the, the Camino runs, then you find a bit of Camino, which will be along roads in some places, um, and also at cathedrals. They, they pass all of the major churches that are on the route. So you walk to a church in a town that is on the um, on the route and you will find a you will find a scallop shell. I had a lovely man called Alistair Humphreys on recently and he did a he's done a lot of very vast and wide exploring, but one of the things he did not so long ago and he wrote a book about it is following Laurie Lee's footsteps yes. from northern Spain mm. down to Madrid mm. and beyond. And he was talking about sleeping out under the stars and he had these beautiful, evocative stories about Spain and meeting Spanish people. And it made me go back and I read Laurie Lee uh, as I walked out one midsummer morning. What I wondered is, because I'd love to do a long walk like that, Mm. particularly in Spain, are you on roads? Can you avoid the motorways? Because we've got a lot of motorways, sadly, these days. How how do you avoid those? One of the trouble is, particularly the northern route, the original path is pretty obviously where they built the, the freeways. And walking the Camino del Norte, and my wife and I found it, um, it were some long stretches on the edge of the freeway. And frankly, they were not fun. I mean, we had a picture of walking along beaches, and that was pretty much the way it was promoted. But And there are moments where you're doing that, but you are certainly not walking beaches all the way. Whereas the Camino Frances the, 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 has been pretty well protected. Yes, there are some sections along road, but not too many. The, the, the path itself is pretty good. And the section in France, I mean, the interesting thing to do is to, if you want an interesting walk, is to take on something like the French section. Beautiful. Yes, there are a few sections along roads, but not too many. It's it's largely through you know, through forests and, and so on, so it's great. That sounds amazing. I really have to do it. So what does a typical day involve when you're in your holiday home in France? Well, it involves writing. Both Anne and I write and we collaborate, uh, meaning we are each other's first and last readers. We plot together and so forth. So a typical day is... Up in the morning, go for a jog, come back, have breakfast, write. Grab, maybe go shopping in the village um, and, and get some lunch, maybe have a coffee in the village. And, and then the two of us will just sit in the, the main living room just with our computers, typing away and using me as a sort of human thesaurus saying, how do you spell this? Or you've got another word, that, I'm thinking of a word that's such as that. I use her as a sort of one-person appreciation society. Just listen to this. How funny is this? Oh, not that funny. <laughs> Whatever. And then uh, about uh, 6 o'clock, we'll, uh, we'll pour a glass of wine. We'll start cooking dinner together, perhaps on the barbecue, depending on the weather. Um, we've got several little zones, different places where we can have a drink. Um, and you know, we don't have too many alcohol-free days. Um, oh, and we, we chat about what we've been writing and what, what challenges we've been facing, have dinner, Oh my God, down. that sounds no like the absolute dream. No television. Internet? Yes. You need it for work, don't you? Yes, we have it, but it's it's not particularly fast. It's, it doesn't encourage its use. It's, it's there if you need it. So for the in the evenings, you'll be sitting and chatting and having a glass of wine and maybe maybe reading a book and all that yep, all old school about. stuff. All that old school so stuff. Jealous. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It's just a lovely way to live, and I'll be doing it again very soon. So, have you met any colourful local characters? The most, in many ways, that we have a, a caretaker, for want of a better word. It makes it sound very posh, but there's a little. Um, Apartments that the previous owner built above the garage, and friends of friends knew a chap who just recently separated from his partner. He's about ten years older than me, and so he's been living up there. He speaks no English and and, he, and French with a really heavy Burgundian accent that I, that really limits our communication. I'm here to tell you, it's like I think like dealing with someone with a very heavy Scottish accent <laughs> or something like that. If you're not a native English speaker, even for native English, yeah, that, 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 what, even for so. native English speaker, yeah. I remember when my my previous partner was working as a, a medico in uh, in Norfolk. 
they had to bring in a translator and interpreter at one stage between her Australian and their, their heavy sort of Nafa uh. <laughs> accent. Um, but, but our, our caretaker is, um, a, uh, you know, lovely guy who, you know, up until recently has been looking after the garden, but he's fallen on sort of poor health and he's still there and we've sort of become very, uh, friends with, with very poor communication. <laughs> So you've used France in the books, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I use France obviously as a starting point and you know important point in the Camino de Santiago and two steps forward. And I think it makes the book a little bit of a point of difference that most most Camino books are memoir, not fiction. There's very little fiction around. Having the French part of it just gives you a little bit of a point of difference. But also in the best of Adam Sharp, I set it deliberately in three places, and it's sort of around the mood of the of the book. That Adam's in in Norfolk and, and in Manchester, and when we open it, he's in his current life in, in his late forties in Manchester, and it's a bleak Manchester sort of day. And this is this is his life. It's a bit bleak. It's not not it's not bad, but it's not but it's a bit grey. I can we can all relate to those days in England. We can. And then he re- reflects back to when he was living in Melbourne. Sunny Melbourne, doing his six-month or so contract where he falls in love, and um, you know, and, and the sun is shining, and there's beaches, and all the things that you associate with with Australian life, but also it being a holiday. It, this was a vacation for him, some time out working when he really belonged to England, and and therefore the it gives that sense of temporariness to the relationship that he falls into, that he's visiting here with his relationship, that he's not really serious about marrying this Australian girl, even though he's madly in love with her, because he's on holiday. It's a holiday romance. And then in the second part of the book, where they get back together, as it were, with her husband in tow. So she and her husband invite (laughs) Adam to come and stay in their holiday home in France, and it quickly becomes apparent that the marriage is in trouble and that she's got some sort of fairly serious agenda, which Adam spends a lot of time trying to find out what, what what's going on. And you think of French, well, you think of French farce, you think of perhaps the French as being just a little bit more libertarian in their in their approach. So this is this is where things turn a bit more sex lies and videotape. Um, so those those three places were, 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 and it's a village. It is, you know, villages might be modelled a little bit on where our house is. You're very much drawing from your life on ab- this. Ab- absolutely. Well, at least the location. And, and a village has that sense of isolation. You're not in the middle of a big urban place. So this is just us out here, just the three of us. And really, they're the only characters plus the caretaker. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds amazing. I'm sold. I have to say that sometimes with my guests, I have time to read their books. And with you, I haven't had time to read your books. And I'm definitely sold on uh, all of them. It sounds like I'll be plowing through those through the summer. Well, the best of Adam Sharp will certainly take you to Manchester. It will take <laughs> you to Norwich. It will take you to Melbourne a lot more. And it will take you to France. To the south of France. And it will take you into some somewhat transgressive um, sex. So you just need to be a little bit broad-minded. Transgressive it's not, sex. Okay, it's not that's the Rosie good. Project. There are three people in this house. Okay? <laughs> oh, that sounds brilliant. I want to ask you what happens at the end, but obviously you can't tell me. I'll have to read it. Well, at the end... Adam has to figure out what's going on, and then, because it's the nature of the premise of the story, he is going to have to make a choice mm-hmm. between the great love of his life, who's come back, the unresolved love, the, the glamorous one, one the one that got away, and the steady person that he's been living with for 20-odd years and has walked out on to, to pursue this. Oh, that's or, or the third possibility that of, my, of, of neither of them, and to, to move on and... And enlighten, start something new. I can't wait to find out what happens to Adam. I will definitely be <laughs> reading that. I know you've also travelled extensively around the US. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time um, professionally traveling around the U.S., giving giving courses, doing consulting work, and now, of course, on book tour, which can take you to all sorts of parts. And people, you know, and the great lesson I've learned is do not generalize about the U.S. of A. Just when you've said all Americans are like this or this is a strongly held view, someone's going to pick you up in a taxi in Pocatello, Idaho, or something like that and have a completely different political view or be hugely enlightened about something or know the world better. Yes, there are some generalizations you can make, but, but not you shouldn't make them. Have you been, is that person a real, char- a real character, the taxi driver that enlightened, had some enlightened views? Oh, look, plenty of taxi drivers will say all sorts of amazing things that you hadn't, you hadn't expected. I do love a taxi driver. You know, I turned up in Pocatello, Idaho one time, um, to see a Dylan concert, which I made an impulsive decision to go to. It was what, it was what workshop do I choose on the first day of a conference, which I think was in New York. And I was stopping over for some reason in Salt Lake City. There was a commuter flight to um, Pocatello, Idaho. Dylan was performing and there were tickets. And I just jumped on that plane and went to see and went to see Bob. I've arrived at the airport in Pocatello and I'm looking around for a taxi and someone's come up and said, no taxis here, there's about three in town or whatever. But the, this couple who were older than me offered me a lift to my hotel that I had booked. They then picked me up and took me to the concerts and killed, they weren't going themselves and picked me up after the concert and took me back to my hotel. It was just such just lovely, lovely people. And that's the sort of a thing about you know, humans that you just you just hold on to. That's the sort of thing about travel, though, isn't it? Travel exposes you to those sort of experiences, makes you, makes you a little bit vulnerable. So you have to trust the local that offers you a lift. And they trusted me. I had a shaved head and an earring at that stage because you do a – we do – Australia, I think you do it here – a shave your head to support um, cancer research. And I'd done the head shave, the sponsored head shave, and I'd put the earring in just to go with it. And, I, and a beard – I probably didn't, you know, didn't look the safest sort of, you know, data management consultant that I was. Have you ever been somewhere where you felt completely out of your comfort zone? A couple of times I have. When I was much younger, I felt in Morocco, I felt uncomfortable. I felt mainly uncomfortable because both my partner and another woman were with us and the other woman was being hassled. And it was having to really step in and, and, and just do something and she was making it a lot worse um, and you know you can't control what someone else is going to do and she was busy digging a hole for herself you know I felt physically threatened under under those circumstances look Paris can be a bit like that occasionally now um, where you feel physically pushed I know my son came back from Paris and he speaks fluent French and has a black belt in karate and is a biggish guy unlike me and he and his girlfriend were there and he was pushed and shoved by by and, and felt genuinely, genuinely threatened. And there was another case where he was on exchange and a girl was actually, um, really badly assaulted in the same buildings that they were, they were in while he was asleep. So, you know, but I've traveled enormously and I very, very seldom felt in danger. And it's not like that those things wouldn't happen in your own city. Where have you felt happiest? Apart from Australia and the house in France. Oh, you took out the, you took out two. Well, I'm going to say Spain because walking. Walking in Spain, really enjoyed. You know, an enormous sense of freedom when you're walking and there's nothing but what's on your back. What inspired me, encouraged me to walk the Camino was a long time ago reading Carol Shields' book, The Stone Diaries, where a guy just sheds everything and, and starts walking in, in the UK, in fact, and walking right up to the north. 
uh, to the Orkneys. I really at that time was sort of carrying the heavy corporate burden and so forth and thought, wow, if only. And when my wife suggested that we do the Camino walk, that was the image that came straight back to me. And I thought, yeah, I'd like to do that. I really want to do it. I kind of want your life. I want to sit in a (laughs) house and write abroad and walk and drink wine in the evening. I have a, I have a wonderful life and I'm extremely grateful to have it. Um, you know, but you, you are very aware that it can change in an instant. And I think you have to live life knowing that. You do. You really do. So I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music because to me and to many people I speak to, music and travel go hand in hand because music helps evoke and cement memories. And if you had to choose one song that reminded you of a special or memorable time and place of travel, what would that song be? Okay, that's an easy one, but can I have an experience as well? Absolutely. So walking the Camino, um, we had one of those sort of quintessential hiking experiences where a whole bunch of people after a whole day's walking and so forth had just assembled together and there was a chap there uh, who could play guitar. He picked up a ukulele that was hanging on the wall, managed to work out how to use that and he played Leonard Cohen's song Hallelujah, which sort of everybody knows today. I've got a, had a harmonica which I packed with me, so I was playing fills and so forth, a little solo on that, and we had a, a woman with a beautiful voice singing it, and it was just that, you know, that, that quintessential hiking moment where you've got a bottle of wine. We were in a bar where you had a, you know, a bottle of wine open and all those sorts of things. So that would be the one that would bring back that memory. And I'm a big Leonard Cohen fan as well, so that's a big positive too. Look, the other was a moment many years ago where I visited the, uh, the parish church in Eddington in, um, you know, so in, in the UK, Eddington, Wiltshire, where my, ancestors are buried so this is you know doing some family history tracing and so forth and we discovered coincidentally that that night the Wel- that the welsh boys choir would be singing the the service the next day but they were having and it would be recorded by the bbc uh, but they were having a rehearsal that night and it was a free rehearsal that you could come along to so we just walked into the church nobody spoke there was no announcements no nothing the choir came on they sang the mass and we walked out and it was the most spine-tingling musical moment of my life. That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much, Graham, for that delightful introduction to your books. I'm looking forward to reading them. And thank you very much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.